powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. This is Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports. Streaming through the Seattle Sports app. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Here we go now. Had a big move made in the uh, the coaching search in the NFL. You got Ben Johnson who says, no, nah, I'm not going to the Commanders. I'm not going to Seattle. And we need someone to shed some light on us. Why not be joined by Connor Orr, Sports Illustrated on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. Connor, how you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? We're good, man. Thanks for joining us. You know, we're, we're getting ready for our show, Curtis and I, and we're, we're putting together segments, and we're saying, okay, man, it's down to three guys. We got Ben Johnson. Mike McDonald and Dan Quinn, and uh, we get the uh, the alert that Ben Johnson decides to stay in Detroit. What does that say about the Seahawks and the Commanders, and what does that say about what's going on over there in Detroit? I, I mean, I think anyone who knows Ben knew this was a possibility. Um, you know, Ben was obviously a top candidate this year, but remember last year, I mean, the Carolina Panthers were falling over themselves to try to hire him, and he backed out because he just didn't feel like he was ready. And he's got his own internal barometer in terms of what he wants to accomplish, what he wants to do, and I really do think that there's some genuine interest there for him in, uh, in trying to win a Super Bowl with the Lions. Connor, now it kind of feels like the Seahawks are picking from Mike McDonald or Dan Quinn. Uh it, does it feel like that to you, or do you think there may be a surprise candidate behind door number three? I mean, they could always, um, you know, they could always dip back in. I mean, look, they've interviewed guys that I think people aren't crazy about on their face, but I think in a different year would be considered top candidates. Like I'm talking about guys like Ezra Evero from Carolina um, has been one of the best defensive coordinators in the league for the last two years. He just has been defensive coordinator for really bad football teams. And I think that there's, you know, a, there's a difference. Same with Pat Graham, where I think he's, he's had a really strong track record. If they hired one of those guys, would people freak out maybe, but I think it might end up working out better for them in the long haul. But yeah, I mean, I, listen, I do think that there's a lot of interest in Mike McDonald and um, you know, I, I could see this thing ramping up quickly now because it's a two horse race. Connor, I got um, I got kids, right? And um, as a parent, I don't know if you have kids or not, but as a parent, um, no one can talk about my kids' flaws. Only I talk about my kids' flaws, right? There's, there's some bias there. Are we are we biased over here in Seattle? This is from the text lines, honestly, in thinking that this is such an attractive job with John Schneider and the weapons you have on offense and defense. Is there a possibility that you know Ben looked at what the Commanders had to offer personnel wise and what the Seahawks had to offer and said, you know what, Detroit's uh, a lot better. I'm going to stay home. I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I I think that part of that is overblown. I think there are coaches certainly who would take anything. um, And as we've seen, you know, a a couple times this off season for sure. But I also think that, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff going on. I mean, you know, we we don't know what's going on in terms of where does someone's family, where where do they want to go? You know, do they want to stay here? You know, did someone say at the last minute, oh, you know, everybody really is comfortable here in Michigan? Like, we don't know what went into him pulling out, but we do know that he's pulled out of uh, races before Ben Johnson. So, I mean, I think that he's probably got his own again. Like, you know, we've all got our own internal calculus there, whether it's money, whether it's comfort, whether it's family, whether it's schools. And so, you know, there's a, it could be any number of those things. Connor, when you watch the Ravens' defense this year, what what stood out to you? And does Mike McDonald strike you as a guy that uh, could have lots of success as a head coach in the NFL? 
Yes. Um, I think, you know, one of the cool things about Mike, um, you know, did some research on him and just looking back to his time in Baltimore, he was really one of the first younger assistants with the Ravens organization that was helping them figure out when to run all these situational blitzes, how to run all these situational blitzes, bringing a lot of the creativity to the table that would then work its way up to other guys. And now we're seeing him with full reins of this system, really implementing some some phenomenal stuff. And I think that that crosses over because it's less about personnel and it's more about timing and understanding what the offense is doing. And what I've heard from Mike in particular is that he's a really good understanding of how offenses operate. How much does winning right now play a factor into these decisions? I look at a guy like Harbaugh who goes to the Los Angeles Chargers, joins the AFC West knowing he has to get through Pat Mahomes two times a year. Do you think candidates are looking at the NFC West and saying, well, the Niners are good every year, the Rams are solid every year? Um, I, I don't want to deal with that. Or is it is it deeper than just winning? I think it's a lot of things, certainly. Um, you know, you want the quarterback. And if, you're a, if you know that you're only going to get one crack at this, I think that you're probably more aware than you have been in recent years of what teams are telling you at the outset versus what is true. I mean, how, you know, the Houston Texans told three head coaches in a row that they were going to, you know, be there for the long term. They were going to help them build. and They fired two of them after a year, you know, and then brought in D'Amico Ryans and gave him a six-year contract. So, you know, same with Arthur Smith in Atlanta. Thought he was going to get a longer run than he did. So I think he was willing to accept um, the hard parts. And so I think if you're a coach, it's really about developing that level of trust, trying to understand, you know, what an owner's really after, what he's really like. And if you can believe him, if you can have that sense of comfort, then that's great. But if not, yeah, you got to let it rip right away. I mean, you know, these guys aren't in the playoffs in year two. They're uh, they're normally uh, looking at a pink slip. Connor, Geno Smith's biggest advocate in, in the building was always Pete Carroll. And, and that guy is no longer there, at least in the, in the role that he had. Uh, you know, there's all these talks about him becoming an advisor, but what do you think Geno Smith's future is in Seattle? I know there's a, a date coming up shortly after the Super Bowl where the Seahawks have to decide on uh, some guaranteed money that's due to him uh, for 2024. But is Geno a guy that you see here in Seattle beyond this upcoming season? Or is this somebody that uh, could see their time in Seattle come to a close, uh, you know, once a new head coach arrives here? I don't know. It's hard, right? I mean, you don't want to discount what Geno Smith has done, but I think um, I, I think that people are probably more aware lately, at least, of the fact that you know players ebb and flow based on uh, what coordinators are there, what position coaches are there, and so you know after losing Dave Canales, like I do think that we saw a little bit of a regression from Geno. Now we're losing both the offensive coordinator um, and the quarterbacks coach. Would you keep him around and allow him to compete and draft someone? I don't know. It's a good question. But I think it really comes down to can you bring in someone that's running something similar and make him comfortable? Because I think if that's the case, then you're going to be okay. And Gino's a more than serviceable starter. And the second question is can you upgrade and do you have the finances to do it? I don't really see an upgrade out there um, on the veteran market that I, I think Seattle could be in play for. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, if they want to make a move up here and draft someone, they could. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you ever throw out a decent quarterbacking talent if you can build a scheme around them to make it work. We're speaking of Sports Illustrator's Connor or Connor. Um, 
Ben Johnson has created a scenario that I didn't even think about, right? I there was no chance I thought that he was not going to be a head coach somewhere. Didn't see him um, going back to Detroit. So now you got two teams left. Let's say for, you know, hypothetically speaking, you got Dan Quinn or Mike McDonald who decides to go to the Seattle Seahawks, right? And now you're left with the commanders. Do you see a scenario where the commanders are the only team left and neither of these guys want their, that job. So they go back to where um, they originally came from. Then what does that mean for the, uh, the commanders is Eric Bieniemy a guy you can see taking over. That's a name that um, I don't see connected to any head coaching jobs. And it kind of baffles me. One of the things, uh, one person I would watch out for, I mean, if, if everything goes completely haywire for the commanders, I would look out for someone like Bobby Slowick who's the Texans offensive coordinator. And he interviewed with them for five hours the other day. I know they really liked him. Um, he did a great job with CJ Stroud last year. He's a really young play caller and also worked with their general manager in San Francisco. So, I mean, I think that's kind of a, I'm not going to say a B candidate, but I think that's someone that they could pivot to. And, you know, I've been writing since December that I really don't, I, I yes, Dan Quinn makes sense in Seattle, but I don't know if he was their number one guy all at, at any point during this. You know, um, I think that they liked him. They were familiar with him. Obviously, they love him. But, uh, you know, I think that this team is also very concerned about the fact that they're in a division with Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay for the foreseeable future. And, you know, that, you, that involves a lot more than just hiring a good defensive coordinator as a head coach. Yeah, you bring up Shanahan and McVay. That's been a, a big talking point around here is just kind of how do you catch up to the Rams and 49ers? And and do you think that is a, a detractor in, in the Seahawks job, something that's working against them, finding a candidate is like, hey, a quarter of your season is going to be against the Rams and 49ers? Yes and no. We've also seen how quickly some of these teams can fall off a cliff, too. I mean, the Rams are getting better and they're rebuilding, but – you know, I wrote this the other day. I mean, look, the 49ers are great, but like Trent Williams is 36, you know, uh, some of their pieces that they have to have to make this work, like George Kittle or Kyle Juszczyk, you know, some of those guys are getting older and those players don't really exist anywhere else. Like a, you know, a fullback that can run routes like a tight end, you know, I mean, they're, they're hard to find. And so I do think that, you know, while the kind of the specter of it seems big right now, I do think coaches probably they're like, okay, if I can make the playoffs, if I can win a couple games my first few years and hang around, I'll be okay. Because, you know, none of this stuff is forever. I mean, look at the Eagles last year. I mean, we thought that team would be dominant for years to come and they, you know, they're, they've kind of fallen off a cliff. Speaking of, um, Guys, aging. I want to ask you about a younger team, man. The Green Bay Packers were fun to watch this year. Love what uh what Love is doing over there. It has a bunch of young receivers as well. Um, I guess other than them, is there a team that you feel like is on the rise and could make some noise here in the next couple of years? Yeah, Green Bay certainly. Houston. Um, you know, if Jacksonville can get things right, I mean, I think you know, I think they probably made the smartest hire of the offseason, which is bringing in Ryan Nielsen to be their defensive coordinator. That defense needed a serious upgrade and was kind of woefully underperforming there, despite all the talent that they have. So, I think there are a lot of really fun young teams in the NFL. I mean, and you you look over in a team like Denver. I mean, how long is Sean Payton going to stay down? I think he really coached them up well last year. If he can get a quarterback he likes, so. Yeah, I mean, I see tons of turnover uh, in the league coming and uh, definitely a lot of young teams coming up. Connor, this Kansas City team, I mean, everybody thought they were 
this was the year they were going to get caught. They were not going to make a run to the Super Bowl. And then fast forward about a month from those concerns, and lo and behold, here they are in a Super Bowl again, fourth time in, in their six seasons. Uh, what I mean, should we be shocked anymore at Kansas City being able to pull off a run like this? It just seems like you can automatically cement their place in the Super Bowl every single year. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of the new New England, and uh, you can see them almost operating that way. You know, I mean, you have a good quarterback, and so everything kind of falls into place, and you can move the ball better than other teams can. You know, you might get a few more calls, you know, than other teams tend to. Um, you know, a lot of things tend to break your way, and especially if you have the, the greatest player in, in football and perhaps maybe one day the greatest player in the history of the sport, you know? And so I think that uh, that tends to uh, that tends to work out well when, uh, when all that lines up. I'm looking at the matchup, obviously, for the Super Bowl, and um, the Chiefs are, are finding ways – to win like we haven't seen before, right? They're leaning on their defense. Their run game is going. Mahomes is doing enough to win the ball game. Then I look at the 49ers, and Brock Purdy is doing enough to win ball games. The last couple games have been impressive to me with Brock Purdy late in the game, putting the team on his back and um, and getting the win. Is there anything else you need to see from Brock Purdy? No, I mean, I think I saw what I needed to see in the second half of the, um, uh, you know, of the NFC Championship game. You know, I think the ability to when things get real bad and you start skying a few throws and you start getting shaky, can you compose yourself and can you get back in the game and, you know, can you make smart plays and whether that was, you know, some of the, uh, the pocket escapability that we saw, um, you know, he did have some nice throws over the course of the second half after having a really bad first half. So for me, I mean, who knows? It, could the moment be too big for him? I, I remember a lot of people saying that about Jared Goff uh, during his Super Bowl when he lost to New England. Could that be a similar scenario for Brock Purdy? You never know. Um, but he's already played in a ton of high-pressure games already this season. He is MMQB and Sports Illustrated Connor or on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. Connor, we appreciate your time. Thanks for all your insight. Thanks, Connor. Thank you, guys. All right, that was Connor Orr. It is now time for Four Down Territory. Let's get it. This is Four Down Territory, going inside, inside the, the game. game with former Seahawks and Coug wide receiver Michael Bumpus. Bump, first down to you. Which veteran wide receiver was maybe a little overpaid on paper, but you think was worth the investment for just the one year? Man, veterans get overpaid sometimes, but I also think if you're able to hang around the league for two or three contracts, um, you deserve some compensation. But I'm going to lean on wide receiver Odell Beckham, man. One year, he made $15 million with $3 million in incentives this year. 35 catches, 565 yards, and three touchdowns. Um, And he earned an extra million off of uh, an incentive. And the reason why I say he's good just for a year, because you look at the situation that the Baltimore Ravens had, right? You got a a new offensive coordinator, Munkin, who's been around the game for a while, but he's coming from Georgia. He's going to change this offense offense. He's going to ask Lamar Jackson to work more from the pocket, right? Now you got a young receiver in Zay Flowers who reminds me of Odell Beckham in a way. About the same size. Their game is the same. Got some wiggle. Great routes when Odell was in his prime. 
forget what you thought about Odell Beckham. This is what I know about Odell Beckham. At this point of his career, he's a mature guy. He's had his successes and his failures in that league. And I think that he is a guy who was in the huddle during these late games, calming everybody down, showing Zay Flowers how to work, right? Having a good relationship with Lamar Jackson, making sure that he's good to go. He's a guy that can communicate directly with the offensive coordinator and have some conversations that other guys can't have. Now, Lamar Jackson being the quarterback, he's going to have those conversations uh, with Munkin. But there's something different when you have a receiver or a running back or an offensive lineman, anybody other than the quarterback speaking to the team and being a leader out there. Now, after this year, you got to switch that up. You're not going to pay $16 million for 35 catches, 565, and three touchdowns. But for one year and all the transition that was going on, I think it was good. He helped this team in ways that didn't really show up in the stat sheet. So it was all good for a year. I saw that number and said, dang, man, they tripping over there. But then I thought deeper about the situation. Next year, you got to switch it up if you want Odell Beckham. But for one year, I'm all right. Second down. Bump, what opportunity might Brock Purdy have in a couple of weeks? All right, this is the opportunity that he has. I just asked Connor if he um, if he needs to see something from Brock Purdy. He says no. Now, when you think about the, the state of the 49ers right now, you got Debo, who has a sore shoulder. Now you have McCaffrey, who has a shoulder injury as well. And you have George Kittle, who has a toe injury. I'm looking at those three, and I'm saying that should be the narrative for two weeks about Brock Purdy and the 49ers. Can Brock Purdy overcome uh, these injuries? Now, they're not major injuries. These guys are going to be out there, and um, they're going to make some plays for them. But let's switch it up a little bit. Let's... Uh, People are always saying that Brock Purdy, he's a game manager. He's, he's not a guy who changes the game. But let's not ignore when he's going to have some weapons who are banged up. So what I want to see is how he handles that when it comes to the media because now you are a Super Bowl contending quarterback. You are a guy that no one really believes in when it comes to his capabilities. Switch the narrative a bit. Focus on the injuries and see if Brock Purdy is going to be able to do what he did the last couple weeks late in the game, which is lead his team to the promised land. He did it with his legs. He did it with his arms. He did it with his composure. Now can he do it with a couple guys who are banged up? Two weeks, a lot can happen in two weeks, right? They can be magically yeah. healed, be good to go. But I'm just saying, the same pressure y'all put on that man to make plays, put the same pressure on him and give him some love if he goes out there and performs with guys being banged up. Third down. All right, Bump, this morning on First Take, Stephen A. Smith said Lamar Jackson choked during the AFC Championship game. Do you agree or disagree with Mr. Smith? This is a tough one because did Lamar Jackson play his best game? No. Play one of his worst games of the season. Uh, you can tell he wasn't comfortable in the pocket. He didn't like what he was looking at. But I also put a lot of blame on the offensive coordinator. I said this on Monday. You guys ran the ball 16 times. 31 times you've averaged when it comes to attempts and running the football. But during the week, I, I, it's hard for me to believe that they practiced one way during the week and then got to the game and said, you know, forget it. We're just going to throw the football. Like something, Muggin must have saw something and thought we're going to be able to throw the football against these guys. My only question is, why did you change it? Why in that game? Lamar Jackson did not play to his capabilities, but the offensive coordinator did not put him in a position to really have that success. But if you are the MVP of this league, you find ways to win. You put the team on your back. So I'm not going to go out and say that he choked. He did not play his best game. He was put in a horrible position, but um, he didn't live up to the bill being an MVP quarterback, man. Again, we give a lot of QBs love. 
We give them not a lot of hay, but criticism. The Dak Prescott's, the Josh Allen's, the Brock Purdy's. I think Lamar deserves it as well, even though I felt like out of those other guys, out of Josh Allen, Brock Purdy, um, who else did I mention? Uh, um, Anyway, out of those guys, their (laughs) offensive coordinators called the game the way they've called it all season. This is the only situation where I look at it and go, why? Why didn't you just do? I don't care if they load the box up and they know the run is coming. Let your Jimmys and Joes beat their Jimmys and Joes. But Lamar did not play up to expectations. I don't think he choked, but he did not. He did not have a good game. That's on both of them. Fourth down. All right, Bump. What would Geno Smith rather have than another Pro Bowl selection as an alternate? One well, big us to Geno, man. That's Two-time look, Pro Bowl. That's going to look good on the resume. I'm ready for the hate text right now about how garbage Geno is to some of you guys. But um, what he would rather have, those incentives, $2 million if he got more than 4,282 yards. An extra $2 million if he throws for more than 30 touchdowns. An extra $2 million if his, complete, his uh, completion percentage is higher than 69%. Two more million dollars if his pass rating is higher than 100. And finally, two more million if he wins 10 games or more. I don't think he touched any of those this year. Now, there was some regression on that offensive line. There was some Geno regression. Um, you can look at the coordinator as well. I think the Pro Bowl is a great nod. It's a good honor. All Pro is the next level. But you look at Gino and I go, man, he missing on two, four, six, eight, about an extra $10 million if he would have duplicated what he did last year. I think we know that or we felt that that was going to be hard to do, right? Yeah. I mean, Gino was amazing last year, and he had his moments this year. So I, I saw the Pro Bowl nod. Big ups to Gino, DK Metcalf, and, and Nick Ballore for getting his alternates. It all looks good on the resume, but football is all about those, those incentives when it's said and done. After, you, after you've lost your final game or you've won the Super Bowl or if you've been booted or didn't make the playoffs, it's about your paper. So I'm happy for Gino, but I looked at that situation, I go, Man, he could use extra ten mil. Yeah, that, that's that's a lot of money that uh-huh. all of us could use. Bob Condotto, the Seattle Times, points out that uh, he doesn't believe that any of Geno's contract incentives were tied to making the Pro Bowl as an alternate. Right, it would have been making the Pro Bowl, getting voted in. So yeah, they knew what they was doing. Yeah, the Seahawks <laughs> made sure. Uh, hey. If you want this Pro Bowl nod, you you got to really earn it. You got to earn it, man, and and that's what and and I felt that if Ben Johnson were to be the guy to come here to Seattle, that he could help him get back to form. Geno was not bad this year, but it was just the the consistency. I look at what he's done with with Jared Goff, and I go, man, we need one of those here in Seattle. But it's looking like it's going to be a defensive guy, even if uh, it's not Dan Quinn or Mike McDonald. You still got a couple guys out there uh, waiting to see what happens. All right, here we go, man. We got lots more to do when we get back. We are going to visit the timeline. Alabama football will speak about Joel Embiid. Says he might want to play another sport. And then uh, Seth Curry is going to face a WNBA star in a three-point shootout. That's going to be fun to watch. She's connected to Kobe, my guy. All that's coming up next. We got Curtis Rogers filling in on the Bump and Stacey Show on the Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. This is The Timeline with Bump and Stacy. Brought to you by 1-800-DUIOA. It's The Timeline on The Bump and Stacy Show. My guy Curtis filling in two days in a row. Dad podcast. Full hey. effect. Let's get it. Let's go. Man, this this stat is crazy right here, Curtis. I had man. to read it like three or four times just Me to too. kind of really like really just like let it overtake yeah right just really just just live in this status crazy when you think of the best programs college programs in the country when it comes to football 
first school you think of is Alabama, right? Right. Then you maybe go like Georgia, Ohio State. Ohio State. Yeah, exactly, Notre right? Dame, yeah. But Bama, man, um, this is crazy. With the 49ers and Chiefs having no Alabama players on their active roster, a remarkable streak will continue. No player who finished college at Alabama has scored a point in the Super Bowl. Not one player. All the players that they had drafted have not scored a point in the Super Bowl. Players from 143 other colleges from Coast Guard, one point, <laughs> to Miami, 84 points, have scored in the Super Bowl. This makes no sense to me. Alabama, yeah. no one scored in the Super Bowl. I mean, now, I think of... All the uh, the images in my head because I can't put names to these images, uh, but I see running backs, I see receivers, Ingram, I see tight ends, Henry, I see quarterbacks. Yeah. I go Julio Jones, Julio, nobody. Julio Jones never scored in the Super Bowl, which is weird to think because like he had that amazing catch uh, with the Falcons against the Patriots, uh, tiptoe on the sideline, but he never scored. Now Jalen Hurts did score a touchdown against the e or against the Chiefs in the most recent Super Bowl. But you don't claim them. As this tweet says, no player who finished, finished. college at Alabama finished. Hurts transferred to Oklahoma his senior season, played for the Sooners, so mm-hmm. he did not uh, finish his college career at Alabama. So yeah, maybe the great yeah the greatest college football program it of is. all time has never had a player score in the Super Bowl. That That's is to me. insane to me, and and it won't happen this year's Super Bowl either. It's a wrap. It I- reminds me of. The Yankees did not have a three thousand a guy get their three thousandth hit in a Yankees uniform until Derek Jeter did. Wow! Like think of all yeah. the players that they have had in their history. Never had a single player get three thousand hits in their own uniform until Jeter did it. That's nuts. That, th- those stats make no sense because all you think of is success when you think of Alabama and the Yankees. Um, but me being a hater that I am sometimes. I'm not mad that Alabama doesn't have a player who has scored, and, not, and I'm not mad that Derek Jeter was the guy to finally now, get that done. People are saying, what about Joe Namath? In Super Bowl three, he did not throw for a touchdown in that game. He had no touchdowns. The only scores uh, in that game for the Jets were a rushing touchdown from Matt Snell uh, in the second quarter, and then they added three field goals after that. So uh, Namath did not have a passing touchdown. Can I say something? Namath, the most overrated quarterback of all time. He had more interceptions and touchdowns. The most overrated quarterback of all time. He's got a gold jacket. I respect him. You got your jacket. You got the very first Super Bowl win. I just see him throwing that number one up as he runs (laughs) through the tunnel. I I respect history. I respect the history, but goodness gracious. Let's go next on the timeline here. (laughs) Joel Embiid told the Men in Blazers podcast he'd rather be a soccer player than a basketball player. Cut number 10. I'd rather be a football player than a basketball player. That's how much I love football. Why? Football to me is like there's nothing close to a bigger sport in the world and there's nothing close to it. But I like the concept of, you know, the team. Like in basketball, like if you have, you know, two good players, you can win any game, really. But in football, like, you know, the team has to be together. The They have to follow the same concept. They have to follow the whatever, the coach's instruction, because the moment you don't, you're not going to win. One mistake, it doesn't matter how good you you are offensively. If the defense is not pretty good, you're not going to win. 
Now, this might surprise some of you, but it, my guy was born in Africa, raised in France, and those are, you know, obviously they, they play the game out there. Yeah. But, Joel, there's no position for a guy your size in soccer, dog. Yeah, they don't have uh, spots for guys who are like 7'1", yeah. 7'2". You can't even play goalie, man. It's it, it just the movements are <laughs> you gotta different. Be a, you got to be kind of a little guy to yeah. play soccer. Well, you can be a bigger guy. You can't yeah. just be seven foot. <laughs> like, you can be 6'4", <laughs> 6'5". We've seen them. The Germans are big as heck. But um, you got to be able to move. And that, that just says a lot, man, uh, of just – the way that game is viewed outside of the states, right? Because yeah. we look at it, and no one, not a lot of people like the game here. Me personally, I like the game, um, but it's not our sport. So when you have a guy who's in his prime in the NBA, mm. MVP candidate, talking about he'd rather be a soccer player as well. I would say NBA contracts are probably most similar to soccer contracts in terms of like huge, huge amounts of money and not a ton of years because they have the, I think it's a five year maximum contract in the NBA. Um, where you know you got guys making like 250 300 million in those five years um it, it's interesting that he comes out with these comments of the same week where he's accused of ducking Nikola Jokic mm-hmm. and it's like how how committed is this guy to the NBA really uh like how <laughs> bad does he want to be great in the NBA for the Sixers like I get that uh you know he's a he's he won the MVP last year he scored 70 points in a game like a week ago like obviously those are Things that you don't have happen to you if you don't put in some level of effort. But uh, Embiid's always been kind of an interesting guy in, in where it's like, is it does it all click for him? Because if it does all click for him, he's one of the greatest players of all time. Right. I just don't know if he's ever going to be one of those guys that's capable of, of leading a championship team. Yeah, that's rough, man. It's um, There's something about his personality that makes me feel like when the game gets tight, the grit isn't there. Now, he's still young, right? He could yeah. still change all of that. Just of what I've seen so far, um, yeah, I have the same concerns as you. Excellent timeline. Uh, Steph Curry. I don't want to mess around. Is it Ionescu, Curtis? Yeah, Sabrina okay. Ionescu. All right, so yeah. Steph Curry will face WNBA NBA star Sabrina Ionescu in a three-point shootout during NBA All-Star Weekend. I love this. I love it because obviously people are always comparing the the men's game and the women's game, and it's a different game. Me, one, I feel like the women's game; these young ladies are a lot more skilled than a lot of guys in the in the NBA game. But uh, there's one thing that is true: no matter you're you're in the WNBA, you're college, you're playing at the park. If you can shoot, you can shoot. No matter what, you can shoot. So why not have two of the greatest shooters in the game go at it? I love this. So Sabrina in the WNBA three-point contest last year, she had the greatest performance that anybody's ever had in that, making 25 of her 27 attempts, setting a uh, competition high of 37 points. That includes the money ball, which is two points uh, for every shot. So I would imagine they're going to have Ionescu shoot from the WNBA three-point line, Steph from the the NBA three-point line. Uh, But still, I think... I think Sabrina could beat Steph if if it came down to it. Oh, I, would, yeah. I would not be shocked For sure. if she is able to sink more than Steph Curry. Now, I will still say that Steph Curry uh, is the greatest shooter of a basketball I've ever seen in my life. There is nobody that has a prettier shot that is a more prolific shooter than Steph Curry is uh, past or present mm-hmm. or maybe even future. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it, our kids... When they watch the NBA, they're probably going to have their guys that they gravitate towards, and, and we're going to be the, the grumpy old men. Nah, no, one, no one shot it like Steph. <laughs> kind of like how old heads say, oh, no one shot it like Larry Bird. Right. It's like, I don't know, <laughs> Steph could run circles around those guys. When we were growing up, 
it was Reggie Miller Reggie, and Ray yeah, Allen. Ray Allen yeah. Like those were the guys. And Steph Curry has just, I mean, just passed their records uh, with flying colors, and it's still racking up. Well, I think this is going to be great. And uh, I'm with you. If Sabrina wins, I am not mad at all. That might be better for basketball if Sabrina gets it done. Let's go to the timeline one more time. The cover athlete for MLB The Show 24 is Toronto's Vlad Guerrero Jr. I love this, man. One, I love that game in general. The show. Now, I haven't sat down and played it like I used to back in the day and just like binge play that game. And that's all I cared about. But um, yeah, man, this is going to be awesome. It's it's an honor to get the cover of that game. Is, Is there any curse? To the MLB The Show cover. You know the Madden had, yeah, had his curse for a I minute. I don't think there's a curse to it. Uh, I mean, there have been, like, Bryce Harper's been on it. I think Shohei's been on it. Um, Javi Baez. And Baez has not played very well since then. So I guess maybe with him. A lot of people kind of wondering why was Julio not considered. And mm. somebody from uh, MLB The Show tweeted, I think, yesterday. So Julio was on the cover of a mobile MLB game, mm-hmm. like for your phone, that I don't think a lot of people ended up buying or whatever. And rules dictate in Major League Baseball with all the licensing is that if you're on the cover of one video game, you cannot be on the cover of another for three seasons. Really? So I think in 2026 would be Julio's first opportunity to be on the cover of MLB The Show. I hope he's balling. I hope so. I I have the utmost confidence that he'll still be balling. I like it. I like it. Okay, that was the timeline. You're listening to the Bump and Stacey Show. When we come back, Jerry DePoto has some thoughts on the Jorge Polanco trade. That's next here on the Bump and Stacey Show. Bump and Stacey. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On Seattle Sports. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacey Rost. Yesterday, the Mariners acquired Jorge Polanco from the Twins. They send over Justin Topa, starting pitcher Anthony Del Scafani, minor leaguer Gabriel Gonzalez, and another minor leaguer in Darren Bowen. Uh, and I think Curtis and I were on the same page to where uh, we, we like the trade. We think that uh, this team is better than it was the day before or the day before that. So that's all love. But what does Jerry DePoto think about this trade, man? And in cut number 12, uh, he talks about how he would characterize the player movement around the league during the offseason. Uh, you know, it's been it's been a weird uh, it's been a weirdly active offseason, despite the fact that there's still quite a few free agents, you know, still out there looking for for work and and i suspect it's going to be a very active two three weeks leading into spring training because of that yeah i i would hope so because it's been a really quiet off season across major league baseball mm-hmm. and there are still plenty of really good names available in free agency uh, available via trade i would love to see the mariners you know not say or i would love to see the mariners say we're not done adding and, and go out and get Maybe another bat, uh, another outfielder or something like that. That would be great. Uh, I don't see that happening, even though their payroll is less than what it was a year ago. Um, yeah, I I just – I'm ready for the market to pick up in a big way here now that we're just about two weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting, Bob. What does that look like to you? It just looks like guys getting like – You just want fair, movement. Yeah, you I want do. Some action. Exactly. I want <laughs> – I want, I want, I want, Headlines to be able to talk about. I want right. to see Blake Snell sign somewhere. Uh-huh. 
Cody Bellinger is still out there. Matt Chapman. I mean, these are guys that we were talking about before the offseason right. even got here as like, oh, maybe that's an option for the Mariners. Maybe that's an option uh, for other teams. And we haven't seen them sign anywhere yet. We are what, th- four months removed from the World Series back in October, uh, and and we have not seen any movement at all with some of the biggest names in free agency. Let's let's get the show on the road, guys. What what, what do you think? Is that is that typical for the offseason? It's for, becoming for the typical. Why, why do you think these guys are holding out so long or our teams are being as patient as they're being? I don't necessarily think it's them holding out. I think it might be just these, you know, front offices trying to be the smartest guy in the room and um being like, Yeah, you know, if, if it if the market comes back down to us, we'll we'll reconsider and these players are digging their feet and saying, like, no, this is my value, this is what I'm worth and um, we're we just haven't seen a ton of movement in free agency, and this isn't just a one year thing. This is a a going on now probably like six seven years of this. And I remember back in the day, Major League Baseball free agency was a lot like NFL free agency, where you know as soon as it opens up, you see guys signing here or there, yeah. and, and there was no waiting time. All right, well, you heard it from Curtis, uh, MLB. Speed that thing up. Y'all taking too long. But there's there's something we do know about uh, Polanco before we even see him. That's his leadership. Cut number 13. DePoto talks about that. Well, he's got a good team of workout partners. He hits with Julio um, and among others. And it's a, it's a star-studded cast that hit together in Tampa during the, the winters. And, and Jorge's among them. And, you know, I, I imagine that, that the relationship that he's developed with Julio over time is going to be a benefit as he as he joins our clubhouse. And, and we've always received tremendous feedback on, on the type of person he is, his leadership qualities, just general work ethic and positivity. So, you know, really excited to put him with our group. Man, for the most part, the Mariners have done a de- decent job of getting the right guys in the clubhouse. Obviously, you're not going <laughs> to you're going to swing and miss a couple times. We've seen that, but uh, that's a good place to start, man. It, it feels like he's going to be able to to acclimate uh, pretty good out here. Yeah, and looking at the leadership that has left the building over the last year plus, Paul Seawald, Carlos Santana. Uh, I mean, Mitch Haniger did leave. He's now back, but like Robbie Ray was a guy that a lot of people in that clubhouse look to as as a leader. Gino Suarez is another guy that's gone. You had to find somebody that was going to replace that kind of void that ended up sprouting up with all these guys leaving. If Polanco is that guy, I mean that that should help things out. I know he's got a history with Mitch Garver. They played together in Minnesota. Garver seems like another guy that could potentially uh, step into those shoes because he's been around the game for quite a while in Minnesota and in Texas, just won a World Series with the Rangers. So I think that Jorge Polanco is somebody uh, that if he can add anything beyond what he's doing on the field in in terms of that production, I think that's going to be huge for this this Mariners ball club. Curtis, one of the concerns you had was about uh, the pin, right? No Topa, yes. no Campbell. How are they going to address that? What do they feel or how do they feel about that? 16, DePoto. Very confident, like I said, and, and those three guys that man the back end. And, you know, Mooney and Brash and, and Gabe Spire, who very quietly had an awesome year for us last year. You know, we've got our bullet, our, our pivot man and, and sauce, and I think that group is, is you know, we're – they are both experienced in the back end and they are coming off 
good years, all four of them. And, and you know, the challenge now exists to find a way of taking that group and matching it up with the guys that give us a little more length, you know, the Trent Thorntons and the Austin Bots. Thoughts there, Curtis? I admire their ability to say, you know what? Like, we believe in what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And there's a track record of them having developed a ton of bullpen arms, guys that have had struggles throughout the majority of their careers, and all of a sudden they find whatever it is that works here in Seattle, and they're able to take that elsewhere. Paul Sewell, I think, being the best example of this, uh, but also other guys like Justin Topa, who came here last year. Um, to a lesser extent, like Drew Steckenreiter, I know he had a really rough 2022 season, ended up getting cut midway through there. Um, but he had a great 2021 season. So they've been able to do it kind of year in and year out. But last year at the end of the season bump, you and I and Stacy every single day, the Mariners, uh, you know, they would they would pick up some wins in, in the months of August mm-hmm. and September. But how often were we just kind of like, all right, uh, bullpen nearly blew in the ninth inning. <laughs> Are you having any concerns? And right. you, you bump would be like, no, not yet. Talk to me when they do it for six nights in a row or something like that. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, bump four or five nights in a row seems to be a bit of a problem. Uh, that's kind of what it was when you had, when you got rid of Seawald, you still had Brash, you still had Munoz, but you didn't have anybody that could get the ball to those guys. And they haven't really done a ton to address that this offseason. I know that they've acquired a couple of relievers here or there. Austin Voth most recently, uh, the Kent kid. He went to Kentwood. Uh, and then you've got guys like Jackson Kowar, who they re- received in the Kelnick-Marco trade. Um, but none of these guys are, are really proven commodities at the big league level. So it's the Mariners betting on themselves again in the bullpen. And I'm, I wonder how many times you can play that bet and continue to win. You mentioned two names before we get out of here that got my attention. Uh Munoz and Brash. We've seen those guys look dominant, and we've Mm -hmm. seen them, uh, Munoz especially, go through injury, and Brash has uh, lose some control out there. Are they the the guys that initially they're going to lean on to kind of hold down the pin? Yes, in a big way. I I would expect those guys to have – maybe not as huge of workloads as they did a year ago where Brash and, and Munoz were both out there, I think, for probably 70-plus games each. Uh, so basically every other night they were pitching at some point. Um, that is a very tough, tough workload to to give young pitchers, especially Munoz, who was dealing with, I think, a shoulder issue at some point last year, has had Tommy John surgery in the past. you got to find somebody that can give those guys a breather. I'm with you. Tune in to the Hot Stove tonight from 7 to 9 p.m. on Seattle Sports. Tonight's guests include GM Justin Hollander, Mitch Garver, and 2023 first-round pick Colt Emerson. Uh, But when we come back, Ryan Divish will join the show. It's been a while since we've spoken to the guy, man. That's next right here on the Bump and Stacey Show.